When we were right there at the end of ordinary time during the daily mass readings, we just started going through the book of Genesis when we stopped and hit Ash Wednesday. Let's say it's one of those things where I think since we grow up with it and so often, you know, and like if anybody's ever tried to have the task of reading through the Bible, we start with Genesis, right? And it is so beautiful, but I think we fall into the trap very often of like, oh, I know this part, you know, and we kind of like skim through it and move on kind of quickly. But one of the mornings when we got to the story of Cain and Abel, it really struck me in a new way, I think for the first time. Once again, it's a beautiful thing about scripture, ever ancient, ever new. You know, every time we approach it, it's like approaching it anew. But when it came to that whole interaction between Cain and Abel, you know, Abel makes his offering to God of the you know, firstlings from his flock, and God is pleased. Cain makes an offering from the ground, God is not pleased. Cain gets jealous. And God essentially says to him, hold on. Like, I mean, obviously I'm paraphrasing. God didn't actually say hold on. But he essentially says, I know what you're thinking. You know, you're jealous, but don't be. Like, keep making your offerings to God. Stay close to me. But essentially Cain harbors that anger in his heart. He's jealous of Abel. And so he kills him, right? And then, you know, God asks, where is your brother? And Cain, of course, says, am I my brother's keeper? You know, and, you know, he says, what have you done? You know, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the earth. And Cain, of course, immediately is like, oh, you know, how can you send me away? Someone will essentially do the same thing to me. And God protects him, you know, gives him the mark of Cain. If anybody does something to you, I'll do it to you, do it to them sevenfold. But it just is one of those things where you can see early on from the beginning, right? We've got the fall of Adam and Eve. They break the relationship with our Heavenly Father from the garden, from the beginning. And it just goes downhill from there so quickly. And the fact that their two sons, immediately one of them kills the other one. And then recognizes the fact, I think very quickly, that if this is the way that we're going to handle each other that life is not going to be so good, right? There's the, uh, I think he was a 17th century philosopher from France, Thomas Hobbes, might be the 18th century. Please forgive me if I'm wrong. But he says that life is poor, nasty, brutish, and short. He was a lovely man. But he says that, why? Because he says that ultimately, life is a zero-sum game. We're all out there to attack each other. You know, it's sort of like Cain and Abel, where he's jealous, so he kills him, right? And you can see it in Genesis. Like it goes from, you know, so Cain gets married, they have children. You move through a couple of generations to Lamech, then you have Noah. But by the time of Noah, I mean, what sort of was in seed form with Cain and what he's worried about is already taking place. The world is full of violence. It's full of debauchery. It's full of all of these terrible things. And so how does God handle this? Well, In looking at it, it's almost like saving them from their own sins in a very big way, right? Wiping things out with the flood. But God sees the goodness in Noah and draws him and his family, this eight in total, Noah, his wife, his three sons and their three wives, and of course, you know, the two by two, the clean animals, the unclean animals, all this drawing in the ark, we know the story well. And then today, of course, getting that first reading about that covenant between God and Noah. And we all know, you know, what he puts down in the clouds. 
But think about what it is. It's a bow, you know, it's a symbol of essentially violence. It's a weapon. It's that way of like taking people out. And yet, as God makes this covenant with Noah, he promises not to do this in the same way again, promising never to just wipe us out again. And the interesting thing is, so today's first reading was the ninth chapter of the book of Genesis. So we're still very early on in the Bible. Only goes to verse 15. Keep reading chapter 9. Noah immediately like falls again, right? He plants a vineyard. And guess what he does with the vineyard? He drinks too much. And there's problems that ensue from there. So from the beginning, you know, from that fall of our first parents, we keep messing up time and time again. G.K. Chesterton said that original sin is the one doctrine that we don't have to work hard to prove. We just have to look at ourselves, right? We know our fallen state and we know that we continue to fall back into things time and time again. And here we are, what, four days, five days into Lent at this point. And man, it's just easy sometimes to be like, yeah, I'm fallen. I'm more attached to certain things than I thought I was. That, gosh, this shouldn't be as hard as it is, but it is. But the good news for us, especially in seeing the second second reading in the gospel today, is the new way in which God chooses to handle things. He's laid his bow down in the clouds, right? And he sees it, he remembers his covenants all the time, knowing that he's promised not to wipe us out. How does he handle things now? Instead of, let's say, and I like, I just kind of like this analogy for getting things done quickly, right? He's not gonna go fishing with dynamite anymore, right? Like, yes, that's an efficient way to go fishing, especially if you wanna make fish sticks, but it's not a good way to draw in the fish one at a time and have them intact. Look at the way that our Lord goes about things now, becoming one of us, entering down right before our gospel today into the waters of baptism into the depths, into the mystery of sin and death and rising up, hearing, you know, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And what does he do immediately into the gospel today? The spirit drove Jesus out into the desert and he remained in the desert for 40 days, tempted by Satan. Our Lord, instead of just casting down judgment from the skies. Instead of just sending another giant flood to wipe everything out, he comes almost like a surgeon to remove the cancer of sin. Comes in that gentle way of being on our plane, of entering in to all of this with us. And already you can start to see things getting worked out, being better. Look at what Mark tells us. This is unique to him. He was among the wild beasts. It's almost like that line from Isaiah about, you know, the lion laying down with the lamb. You know, the the child putting his hand on the adder's lair. All of a sudden, humanity and nature coming back together. Jesus being able to be with the wild beasts out there in the desert and yet beginning to set right what once went wrong. He doesn't stay off at a distance. He doesn't just send down the thunder. Rather... He enters into all of this himself. My brothers and sisters in Christ, by our very baptism, we are baptized into 
the body of Christ. We are given the grace to overcome that original sin and all of its effects. And what, you know, we, we entered into by our very being, you know, children of Adam and Eve. Jesus Christ has made this possible that we go through his death and rise with him anew. Now, we know in our very bones that yes, the accuser, Satan, continues to tempt us. There are all sorts of trials along the way. But the beautiful news is, is that God doesn't just strike us down with a flood anymore. He's promised that's not going to happen, and he remains faithful to his covenant, even if Noah and everybody else along the way has not. He's willing to, so to speak, get his hands dirty. He's willing to be in the midst of all of this with us. And even after that temptation, immediately goes to Galilee and says, this is the time of fulfillment. This is the time that we can enter back into that relationship with our Lord. The beautiful thing is, is he doesn't handle this like fishing with hand grenades, right? Rather, he enters in to be in relationship with you and with me. I think a, a good line that can kind of help us grasp this a little bit more comes from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a prisoner in communist Russia, originally with the Communist Party, but eventually thrown into the gulags because, you know, they change the rules all the time. He's one who told us to live not by lies. But one of the beautiful things that he said one time was that the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And therein lies the beauty of our faith, and frankly, the beauty of this season, that all of us are affected by the fall. All of us are tempted in one way or another, but we're so blessed in the fact that we're not just left to it, not just left to our own devices. It's not as though either God just wipes us out or says, you know, good luck handling the fact that you're tempted by all these things. Rather, he enters into all of this with us. He helps us through the temptations. He gives us his grace. He makes us part of his body by baptism. He gives us the hope of the resurrection. He has gone before us. And this season calls us to recognize that fact, to know that we have hope, to know that it doesn't end with the way that Cain got that ball rolling of everybody for himself, but rather... The one himself has laid himself down that you and I might have life. Now, so often in our lives, we become numb, we become infatuated with all sorts of different things, we start to forget this. And just to give you one sort of closing analogy of why Lent makes so much sense, I was really blessed this week, and by the way, if my sister is listening, and especially my brother-in-law, I apologize because I'm totally telling a story about you guys. So my sister was here this week, which was wonderful, and she had the two youngest children. I was blessed to get to go see them. It was awesome. Well, back home, where my brother-in-law is taking care of the older four, and uh, number four is three years old, apparently number four, the three-year-old, it's confusing, we'll just call him Matthew because that's his name. So Matthew apparently was getting really cranky a lot of the time. He's my godson. I feel bad for him. It is what it is. And Chris said to my sister, Chris is my brother-in-law, says to my sister, he's just so cranky. I can't take care of him. She goes, well, he's probably hungry. And he goes, well, I can't just keep, keep feeding him fruit snacks. And she goes, no, you can't. <laughs> and I feel like that is a great analogy for Lent. Why? 
Because so often in our life, it's like we just keep feeding ourselves fruit snacks, right? Yeah, they maybe sort of like numb the hunger, but they don't actually fulfill us. And if you keep eating fruit snacks, you don't want an apple. But an apple actually tastes good if you're not overloading your system with sugar all the time, right? And it takes a while to get back to the point that an apple actually tastes good. And during the season of Lent, we set the fruit snacks to the side, all those things that numb us so much, and draw our attention away from what we actually have. As we fast from, let's say, technology and the things that we're constantly thinking about and looking at, if we just put that at the side for a minute, and read through sacred scripture. Read the book of Genesis, right? Read the gospel of Mark. Yes, is the gospel of Mark on the face of it as exciting as, I don't know what the thing is now, TikTok or Angry Birds or whatever the heck else we do, right? It's not as good. And all it does is fill our minds with something that's not actually going to help us out. But if we stop for a second and say, my God, Look at what you've done for us. Look at what God has come down to, what he's opened up for us in baptism, the way that he helps us through the temptations. And this is the thing. The devil tries to get us with fruit snacks rather than giving us something that actually helps us out. And so this season, as we set those things to the side and recognize what we actually have, It will make us less cranky, first of all, to keep the analogy going for a minute, but ultimately recognizing the fact that we are born into the body of Christ, that we have hope of overcoming that original sin, that ultimately God loves us so much not to just wipe us out, but to enter into all of this with us, to stay with us, to walk with us, that we too might bear our crosses and get to the resurrection. Yes, this season is difficult. I'd rather just eat fruit snacks too, but it won't satisfy me. And I realize that. And this season helps us to see just that. Thank God for the fact that he has become one of us. Let's pray for the grace during this season to recognize that by our baptisms, we are part of the body of Christ. Yes, we are tempted just like our Lord was, but he'll help us through it. He'll help us to ultimately get to that fulfillment of his love that he intended for us to have from the very beginning, that love that he's come to give us, to restore in us, and to offer to us for all of eternal life. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever.